Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, this is Garki and today I have with me uh, Dr. J. Daniel Elam. He is an assistant professor at the Department of Comparative Literature at the University of Hong Kong. He writes about activism, anti-colonial revolutionaries, anti-racist thinkers, third world solidarity, anti-apartheid movements and aid activism. He is the author of many books, most notably of World Literature for the Wretched of the Earth, Anti-Colonial Aesthetics, Post-Colonial Politics, with, published with the Fordham University Press in 2020. And for this book, he has very kindly accepted to join me today. Hello, Dr. Elam. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, as always, I'd like to start with the genesis of this book. How did this book come to be? What were some initial ideas when you started writing this book? So, I mean, the book was originally a dissertation. Uh, and that, that's the most kind of pragmatic line I took. But the dissertation and the kind of project overall began uh, with me asking a few questions, or ha- having a few questions about the kind of status of uh, political thought. I mean, I, w- I was, what I felt like uh, was absent in a lot of political theory was these, uh, was, was notions of a kind of egalitarianism rooted in imperfection rather than perfection, utopias that were flawed or merely sufficient. And what I found, you know, what I found when I read thinkers like Pagat Singh, Hardayal, uh, but then later, you know, Gandhi and Ambedkar, uh, were that these were theorists to me that were really thinking through, a, you know, a makeshift meantime uh, project of egalitarianism, a project of really truly, which I which I find to be truly revolutionary in a kind of sense that it's not about perfectionism, it's not about kind of self-cultivation in some kind of, you know, in pure to purity sense. And, and I really thought that that was a kind of really exciting, revolutionary way of seeing, uh, of, of, of tracking our thinking through a political philosophy for a world that you that was not in existence. So it's a normative political philosophy, a world that is not yet here, which should absolutely be here. And what to do when we aren't living in that world and before we get to that world. And so I, I, that was the, that was a kind of question that I found myself asking over and over again. How do these thinkers think through that? And especially at a moment in the 1920s and 30s, where um, you know, in the wake of World War I, um, you know, the kind of truly a globally horrific war, 
You have uh, you have people really trying to figure out what to do um, now that the you know the so-called promises of the 19th century have been fulfilled in their most horrific form. And you have people trying to figure out what to do to recover a world that um, that might should have been you know that couldn't have ended up in World War One. And so you have this kind of pessimistic utopianism of the 20s that stretches around the world. But I think it's most vibrant relief. Really, I think it's most vibrant forms are to be found in anti-colonial thought, especially in South Asia. You know, this is a moment when the British Raj is beginning to truly sour, uh, but it doesn't look like it's going to go away. So you have these thinkers who are trying to think about the horrors of colonialism, the 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 the, the injustices of empire, uh, and trying to imagine a world that absolutely must exist after that and without that. Uh, but it's not it's not here yet. And it might not, I mean, and, and I think the pessimism of the 30s and or the 20s and the 30s was that it, you know, I think, I think, I think for thinkers like Paget Singh, for Gandhi, this was a world that they were not expecting to live to see. And certainly Lala Hardale and Paget Singh did not live to see it. Gandhi lived to see it and you know, Gandhi lived to see technically the end of the independent uh, the end of the British Raj, but wasn't you know not particularly you know, the, the world after 1947 was not the one that he had imagined. And the same was certainly true for Baker, who watched you know every kind of utopian vision that he had for an anti-caste politics you know, slowly get written out of the constitution he'd written, you know, into the 1950s. So these so but I wanted to grab, I wanted to kind of capture these thinkers um at a moment where they were the kind of most wildly imaginative because it they they because they did not have to hold it up to some rubric of success, eventual success, right? And so this is a kind of an anti-colonialism. The meantime, for the for the you know, and in the waiting room of history, um, um, for those who won't live, who those who won't likely live to see it come about, which is going to be deeply flawed, which is going to have lots of um, imperfections, which is going to be about um, kind of minor ways of taking care of uh, our comrades and friends. I mean, that was what I was finding uh, was a really sort of vibrant, exciting conversation that was being had uh, around the world, especially in South Asia and the British under the British Raj um, in the 1920s. And I was really kind of interested in, in, in staying there and figuring out what, you know, how that kind of thought came to be, what those conversations look like, and how we might kind of rethink anti-colonial thought without thinking about it uh, in some kind of, you know, post-47 looking backwards kind of way, but rather anti-colonial thought in that moment of its own creation. That's, that was the, that's the project of the book. And before we come to South Asia, I want to uh, have a little detour at Franz Fanon, um, who also inspires, I think, the, the title of the book. And you have a very intriguing sentence that states that he lived long enough to silently examine and proofread Jean-Paul Sartre's preface to his work, only to end up feeling disappointed. And uh, I, I asked myself the possible reasons behind this disappointment and whether we have any evidence to support uh, his disappointment, the fact that he was disappointed. Did he write something? How was his reaction? So, uh, so, the, so the title is, so the title gives away the two kind of in, bookends of the book. One is World Literature, which is an, uh, in, you know, I'm indebted to the kind of um, comparative philologists, uh, most of whom were Jews, uh, trying to escape Nazi Germany. So someone like Auerbach and uh, Wretched of the Earth, which is obviously right, as you said, uh, 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 Franz Fanon. And um, the... I think that so the the disappointment I think that we're, that you're talking about in this case uh, is both general and specific. One would be you know he he was he was according to kind of anecdotally he was uh, um, he was disappointed he, he was disappointed though you know kind of necessarily happy I guess with France uh, with Jean Paul Sartre's introduction. I mean Jean Paul Sartre's 
giving you a book of an attraction in the 1960s and 1950s was a huge deal. I mean, this is a celebrity endorsement. But yet that introduction to the register of the earth um, is a is a kind of is a is a in some ways just a wild misreading. Uh, I mean, I don't want to claim that I have the right reading of Fremont, but the, this the, this introduction seems perpetually uh, exceptionally um, misguided. Uh, so, I mean, so anecdotally, right, Franz Fanon was disappointed with the introduction, though he knew it was a sort of requirement for getting this book on on, on the shelves. Um, so there's that disappointment. That that that's that that's the kind of sort of rumors, anecdotes, um, you know, friends of friends and friends and friends of friends and in books saying. Then the disappointment I think I was trying to capture, uh, you know, in the sentiment of that, right, was uh, you know this this disappointment that I mean, Franz Fanon is writing at a moment this is in the late fifties, uh, early sixties. This is a moment where. Uh, I mean, it's certainly like the, that, that's when I mean, was on his deathbed. He he didn't he didn't quite. He lived only a few days after the publication of, um, of the book. So I mean, so disappointment after that is difficult to know. Uh, doesn't exist. Um, but uh, you know, the disappointment, kind of more broadly, that I think I was trying to capture there was the disappointment that comes about around the in the mid nineteen fifties, late nineteen fifties. I'm trying to think more about this now, actually. Um, around the world uh, that is technically post-colonial, but certainly isn't. And, 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 and I guess in France, Fanon's case, right, he, thinking about French Africa and French Caribbean, uh, that that world was still very much in place. The French Empire was quite strong uh, and very and 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 very nasty and active at once. So, the, but the disappointment I think that I was again the disappointment that I was trying to capture was this one where the world that was supposed to have been brought about was not particularly different than the world that um, that existed before it. And so, the, the, so France Fanon's disappointment that the colonial world continues to live on and that anger that you can see the rage that you see uh uh the the, the kind of the really phenomenal anger that you see coming off the page in wretched of the earth uh you know alongside this kind of really careful meditation on on a number of different things right that is that's a disappointment of a world that should be otherwise and still yet isn't and i think that's what i was trying to capture there um, um and we'll come to world literature but before um just to uh, you know, bother you a little bit more about the disappointment. <laughs> you you say that Fano had the skill to communicate effectively with his uh, fellow anti-colonial thinkers while remaining comprehensible to the colonizers. And is that where, is that the interpretation that we can take from this, that these anti-colonial thoughts are not open to the colonizer? So I think there's a, uh, I think there's a, there's a way that I want to read that, that I think it's not, I mean, the, the colonizer's incomprehensibility is is a choice of the colonizer, right? I mean, when you read Jean-Paul Sartre's introduction, you see this kind of bravado that actually sort of prohibits him from even reading Fanon, right? So it's not that Fanon is incomprehensible. Clearly, if he was incomprehensible, we couldn't read him. But there's a certain type of, uh, um, there's a certain type of, writing which is made possible in which anti-colonialism makes possible which is about an infinitely open invitation to comrades and friends and and you know you know, infinite family right so this infinitely open invitation sometimes to the point of being dangerous right which allows Fanon to speak uh, kind of this kind of wildly inclusive you know, uh, first the first person plural we, right? He, he this is his his address is often is you. Know, Fernando often uses this kind of comrades. We must blah 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 blah. 
So he's this kind of infinitely open first person plural uh, as a form of invitation. And yet, right, even as he's speaking to comrades, people who wish to be his comrades, people uh, who uh, you know, are in an anti-colonial mission with him, right, he can never, like that, that is a moment of wild comprehensibility and wild, you know, you know, he can be understood. Right? Uh, and yet, right, uh, certain you know, colonialism then renders that comradeship, that infinite augmentation, Either as a threat or as a either as a kind of an exclusive we, um, and so it's that which is the incomprehensible. It's not it's not the fundamental incomprehensibility of France Fanon. That would be uh, unfortunate. Uh, I mean, selfishly speaking, but um, uh, but it's 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 in fact kind of it's an open invitational first person plural. Um, which renders something comprehensible to comrades while remaining while while, while theorizing its own kind of incomprehensibility to power uh, to authority to colonial authority you think and then sort of the person who gets it the, the best for me uh in the book if it uh, is gandhi right gandhi who creates this this impressive set of vocabulary to describe what he's up to um borrowing from sanskrit borrowing from gujarati translated to english translated back to sanskrit translated to sanskrit in gujarati i mean it's kind of wild backflips of vocabulary and lexicon that make you know, that, that make possible a, a sort of vocabulary of anti-colonialism, but a vocabulary of non-violence, right? So ahimsa, brahmacharya, uh, satyagraha, all of these words uh, um, uh, he he is able to use to be both comprehensible, both you know understandable in a new sort of way, but also wildly incomprehensible. Imagine and imagine uh, showing up to London and speaking sans kind of gibberish Sanskrit um, uh, to your to, to the colonial power. Then this is a kind of phenomenal performance of incomprehensibility, which is yet at the same time you know, gesturing towards solidarity, comrades and friends. Yeah. And because of its comp incomprehensibility, the question, uh, we should talk about uh, philology, and you have blended philology with anti-colonial thought. And I was wondering, because I have not come across many instances where these fields are used together or intertwined so seamlessly, is this integration a part of an ac academic tradition that I'm ignorant of, or is this something that you observed a need for while working on your sources? Um, I have to say, um, this, this is a fantastic question. It's a question that um, I have to admit hadn't occurred to me before it, 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 uh, uh, last fall when someone asked me a very similar question, and it took me by surprise. And I guess the, so. Let's say first is I no, it's not. You have not missed an academic field. You've not missed kind of a, a, a you know a, a new trend in academic study. I I wish I wish I could say that, but no, I think it 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 hasn't set itself up as a trend quite yet. But I must also admit uh, that it is equally true that I didn't put these two fields together because I thought that they should be, which is, a, but the the reason I put them together is I thought that they were and already in conversation. In my mind, they, they, they were asking a similar question. So if, when you read the book, it doesn't seem very often that I am committed to making an argument that we should be reading anti-colonial and uh, philosophy and, and philology together. I start with, I, I sort of treat it, I realize now as axiomatic that why we, we are reading anti-colonial thought and philology together. Um, I have plenty of justifications for that, but I, I, it never felt to me to be an urge. It felt to me when I read, when I you know, just perhaps by virtue of reading them at the same time in my life, you know, my, my 
early 20s, um, you know, that they went together naturally. Uh, and I maybe, and it sort of did the work to justify that perhaps a little bit uh, in the book, but, it, but the book really treats sort of acts as an axiom, as a kind of grounding axiom that these, these two bodies of thought, which are wildly different, anti-colonial thought and philology, Simply should be put together. Put, should simply already are in conversation, or just you know, just should be, but not with a kind of, you know, not with the force of a kind of academic intervention in the first instance. So I mean, uh, uh, Ramsey McGlazer really helpfully called this an offbeat pairing. I mean, so it's a it's a pairing that, but I have to admit that it's, it's a pairing that I didn't think about needing to. I didn't think about it being counterintuitive. I didn't think about it being necessary. I I I thought about it as a sort of true to me, <laughs> um, uh, which is to say, but the, I think that there are really important reasons for doing it, right? So I don't think I'm, I wasn't just kind of floundering in the dark, though maybe I was also doing that. Um, what I was, I mean, what I, th I think anti-colonial thought and philology have a lot in common. And I think the those things are worth really foregrounding here. One is that they are contemporaneous. You have this, this emergence of comparative philology in, um, Germany and France, mostly in the 1920s and 30s. At the same time, you have you have this is when Gandhi and Bhagat Singh and Babka's career and um, takes off. Uh, you have uh, a large part of comparative philology are Jews writing under the context of Nazism, and so they, what they are trying to imagine is a literature, a world literature um, that. Would survive them. I mean, quite, this is the kind of, this is the pathos of a lot of early comparative literature texts coming in out of Germany and France. Uh, and you have an, in in India, you have a group of people who are writing about a world that should exist after colonialism. So you have two. Uh, you know, so you have on one hand an aesthetic project uh, which is inherently political, and you have a political project which is in, is necessarily aesthetic. And by putting those in conversation, I think that they re they 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 reveal the. The, the the that commitment to a world that must be otherwise, and yet that's kind of that 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 commitment is imbued with a this this sort of dismal realization, uh, though also I think really revolutionary, that we won't live to see that world. It must exist, and we must fight for it. But we won't. It it seems unlikely that we'll make it, and so I think that. The, the, that seems to me to be the conversation that these two otherwise seemingly distinct, um, discrete um, bodies of thought have. I think that they belong in conversation, um, uh, but it, it, it's sort of a kind of it's a sort of thing that happened and that, that justification happened after the fact. After I, I have to work backwards from the fact that I just thought that they were so. Um, you know, the contemporaneity, the kind of shared political commitments, the shared aesthetic commitments. Um, I think are both you know very present throughout um, both bodies of thought. Uh, and now coming to um, this is the people that you have discussed in quite detail, uh, and you have brought together Lala Hardyal, um, B.R. Ambedkar, M.K. Gandhi, and Bhagat Singh to analyze anti-colonial thought and practices in South Asia. Um, so the question begs, why these four and among all of the anti-colonial thought that is there. Yeah, the, I mean, so there are, I mean, there's so many fantastic anti-colonial thinkers to 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 read, to to, to read slowly. Um and it, it and you know, you most books require that you choose, I mean, most studies require that you choose maybe four or one or two. Um uh so there's the, I mean, because that conflict. I mean, when I was um 
I mean, one thing that I think is a is a um, I think the book you know the book is you know is absent you know, and, and embarrassingly so from the women who were the colleagues of all of these anti-colonial thinkers, um, uh, and who they treated as comrades and 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 also adversaries and also friends. Um, this book is a is a, is a man-heavy book. I think the reason that that is nevertheless important, and the reason why these four thinkers are stand out, is that what I was interested in doing was taking the most kind of masculine seeming founding fathers of India, or the kind of you know, the the like the founding fathers of India and in some kind of um, you know, like magisterial master or mastery sense. And showing that they themselves, despite this kind of overwhelming kind of posthumous masculinity, posthumous hero uh, hagiographic worship that has been placed upon them, were theorizing their own less. Uh, they were theorizing their own inconsequence and their their own insufficiency and their own imperfection in a way that that like these kind of masculinist hagiographic approaches tend to totally ignore. And so they were theorizing away from their own masculinity. Um, are they someone like Gandhi was in fact very kind of overtly theorizing away from his own masculinity, often to somewhat clunky results. But the, but you know even someone like Pagat Singh who has this kind of wildly you know bomb throwing hero you know aura about him, right? It was was also theorizing, you know, um also you know, debating with his colleagues about how many eggs to eat. He was also having crushes on Bollywood actresses. He was doing all of these things, which were just simply what he, he would do as a normal person. He's 20 years old. But he but these were these are the things that get written out of the stories we tell about anti-colonial activists. They get they when we want to make them the heroes, we when we want to make them the great men of history, we often these are the first things that go because they they are insufficiently masculine, they're insufficiently heroic, they're insufficiently political. I was wanting to actually really foreground these these insufficiencies as the basis of an anti-colonial politics which i think that that was the case for these four thinkers so you know so in some ways i chose the most kind of overtly masculine or most overtly masterful thinkers of anti-colonial thought in order to actually show that they themselves were not committed to that uh, and and were in fact committed to the opposite were committed to kind of theorizing um you know a much quieter a much more um or less recognizably political politics. Um, and uh, I now coming to the world literature, and I was curious why you used world literature as a term because, um, for example, Goethe would say, you know, I could pick a book from any part and then compare them, which and it has been correctly pointed out. I'm not the first one to say is is that it undermines. Uh, the complex political, colonial, uh, social forces that brought these texts, these translations into Europe. And how can we now use world literature to do exactly the opposite, which is to further our comprehension of world literature's anti-colonial mission? How do, how do we do this switch? I think it's about understanding what... I, mean, I, I think it's so maybe one way of saying the one way of putting it would be to say that world literature stands to me as something that is is theorized to be impossibly masterful. And and yet when we go back to some of the founding texts in world literature, 
even if we kind of think about what world literature is and what we do when we say we do world literature, it's actually kind of grounded in a wildly insufficient practice. I mean, so first off, no, the project of world literature to read the books of the world is is an absurdly impossible project. And 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 what you find is a lot of people really early on, and certainly in like in the comparative philology world, were really committed to foregrounding the impossibility of it, right? So, as, so you, on one hand, you, of course, you have a Goethe who can pick up a Chinese novel and a Chinese, you know, a, 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 you know or like Hafez or something like this. Uh, and you, you, there's this, you know, that, that gloss of mastery about being able to pick up any novel and understand all of the world, all of the world, all of the literature. But you, I think it, equally so you have a, a great tradition of people who say this, <laughs> I, I'm a human. Uh, even if the twenty of me were not going to read all of the world and its literature, and what you know, and and why don't we start from that? You know, why don't we start from a project which is going to be perpetually incomplete, perpetually insufficient, and and build up for that? Or you also have a, a, a project where world literature is not a given thing, right? But rather a thing that should exist in a world to come, a world that is after fascism. And so one of the world literature. Is uh is a world is is, a, is literature for a world that is properly worldly, um, and, that, and that's that's another strain. But the dominant strain, you're absolutely right, is one of uh, of that's rooted fundamentally in nationalism. I mean, even from, from Goethe's Romanticism to uh, to anthologies of world literature for American university students, these are projects which are about fundamentally. Instilling a certain nationalist sentiment, maybe the rubrics of world literature, the, the uh, uh, syllabi of world literature, all country-based, right? Read German novels, read French novels, um, and they rely heavily on the nationalist sentiment. That's what I mean. That's that's very much what Goethe was about in his own way, uh, and certainly what Goethe has been taken up to be. And the Nazis, uh, B. Venkatmani uh, has shown, right? The Nazis were really committed to world literature, world literature as one of the world-conquering projects. So I, mean, I think, on one hand, right, I'm interested in reviving that tradition where we start with world literature as a fundamentally impossible project, uh, where we don't know what the world is, we don't know what literature is, and we simply read in hopes of putting that together, or, or to, you know, to in, in conversation with colleagues around us and conversations with colleagues to come, conversations with friends we'll never meet. Um, and I'm also interested, I mean, I, th I think somewhat stubbornly then, you could also say, I'm also interested in taking two projects which were, so anti-colonialism and world literature, two projects which were famously invested in nationalism and reading them without nationalism. Um, so I think, you know, what happens when we read lit world literature as a non-nationalist project, what, somewhat stubbornly and somewhat more stubbornly, perhaps, what happens when we, I mean, going against a lot of, you know, historiography and, and anti-colonial thought, what happens when we read anti-colonial thought without Without as though it's not nationalist, or as though nationalism is not a solved, not an answered question. Right? So in that sense, I mean, it's a it's a sort of stubborn project in that sense. But I think I do think that there's a project in world literature that's been there from the beginning, um, which might be slightly quieter than the more domineering imperial approaches, but which is one that is about fundamentally a different way of reading, a different way of doing criticism that is not about world coverage. Uh, it's not about uh, you know uh, you know imperial knowledge produce, production, but rather one that's simply about critique and critique that's communal, critique that's collective, 
um, critiques that is um, that begins from point of of its own insufficiency and start st you know, starts a project from that point rather than to start a project from the idea that all world that all of the literature in all of the world might be read and known and 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 comprehended. I think that that's the project I want to avoid. I think that's you know I think that is the that's the basis for a lot of as you point out correctly that's the basis for a lot of world literature syllabi and and goals that that project i want to rethink i want to i want to ditch that project in favor of something that's much quieter and much more um collective and in, in, in its form of criticism this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Um, and now turning to Lala Hardial and his unique approach to reading. Uh, and there is this, again, this very intriguing incident where he uh, he had immense fear of publishing his book in India. And surprisingly, when it went to the censors, they did not find it political at all. And I was thinking, is that uh, an example to exemplify what you were saying about Fano as like being incomprehensible to the colonial thought? Um, and additionally, I'm interested in understanding the significance of uh, reading that uh, Hardial, uh, Lala Hardial attributed to anti-colonial movement for the sake of the people who have not yet read the book. Yeah, thank you so much. That's 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 the those are two really helpful questions to put together. So, um, so with the, I'll do work a little backwards. So, so reading for me is is the thing which anti-colonial I I. This, it's, reading is the kind of location where I saw anti-colonial thinkers, the, one, the ones in this book, theorizing the radical egalitarian politics that I was talking about earlier. Right. So it's when I when I went to read these thinkers, what I found as the moment where they start to begin to theorize this radical egalitarianism uh, uh, that's both impossible and necessary, and so on, is is usually around is usually around when they talk about their own reading practices, not when they talk about their not when they or when they theorize what they want to be doing when they read or what they think we should be doing when they read. They're not I'm not interested in empirical reading practices, but I'm interested in the theory of reading or how they theorize uh, reading in the book. So the book uh, that you're talking about is Hence for Self Culture. Uh, um, it's a very curious book. It's it's you can still find it in. Um, I, I found it in Delhi, and so it, it, it's available. I mean, so it's, I don't think it's fully out of print. It's not really done. It's not a bestseller, but it's it's, a, it's around. You can get yourself a copy. Um, Hardial wrote it in a considerably after he would left the Gadar Party and uh, had had he moved to Europe. He'd been to he'd been to Turkey and he'd been to Germany and he he had he had a kind of tumultuous set of years. And then he publishes this book in 1934, um, and and he, he means it truly as so. The book is called Hence for Self Culture. It begins with this kind of process of self cultivation, which looks vaguely like a 19th century self cultivation guide, uh, but then moves really, really kind of quickly to this really broad uh, imagination for what a world state might look like, rooted in friendship. Um, and so you know, it's this idea that you know we we do these things, we we self cultivate in favor of this production of a kind of 
transnational internationalist world um, to come, such that you know, they will look back upon us and say, wow, they, they did the work. Not that we would live there, but, but in fact, that the future generation would, would send us back an acknowledgement of some sort. Not for that, but that would be the thing for me. So um, the book is is, is 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 a curious book, as I said. So it has chapters on you know how many times you should chew food, what food you should eat, what languages you should learn, what genres of books you should read, uh, and and all of these things, who you should read with. And it's really actually very invested in reading. Um, Lala Hadayal thought it was considered it to be political, but was very anxious about his publication in, in India because he was trying to actually to get back to India. He'd been kicked out. Even exiled. Um, the British censors read it and deemed it, as you said, in, insufficiently political. I think the I, I think regardless of the decision, I think what's curious about that this what's curious about it is this this concept of the insufficiently political, which I think we have retained even as we've moved from a colonial reading practice, like the British did in this moment, to an anti-colonial reading or post-colonial reading practice, where we have a rubric for what counts as political that is inherited from the British Raj, not from anywhere else. And so when we read, it, when we read a text and we deem it to be insufficiently political or improperly political, I think what we're doing is a really serious, I mean, in one, in one sense, it, it sort of saved how they all in this one instance, but I mean, it, 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 it owns, it, it owes its, um, it, it, that, that kind of form of reading is indebted to a colonial practice of surveillance and and critique, not another one. And so I think I wanted to I wanted to show that we, like the way that we have always read how they are, as you know, one part is the other party, which is properly political. The other part is this kind of weird, flimsy, new agey how they are, which is writing in Sweden, um, is improperly political. I think that that is a false binary that we have to give up. I think for for proper post colonial criticism, I think we cannot rely on this rubric of the insufficiently political that we've been handed from the British Raj to understand how we read texts. We have to think of we have in other words, what we have to do is we have to take as truth the fact that for Hadai all this was a very political book, and we have to work out from that what political means in this context, not apply our own rubrics for whether and then judge it as to its insufficiency. Um. And so yeah, I mean, then then the project begins. What about this book is political? And because for, certainly for how they all was, and how do we read this book as, you know, it, it, and, and then that is a different reading practice, I think, that we have to think through, right? Than uh, than the one that the, that allowed it to pass the British censors. No, that's what I was trying to get at. And that leads very nicely into um, the the reading materials of Bhagat Singh, uh, which have not been given sufficient. Uh, attention because of non-instrumentality, which we can compare with not being political enough, not bringing out his you know masculinity of uh, being that bomb uh, thrower. Um, and how can you elaborate on what this non-instrument, this theory of non-instrumentality entails when we read Bhagat Singh? Yeah, so for Bhagat Singh, what I did, the methodology for each chapter is a little different or you know, kind of how I approach each thinker is a little different. For, for Pagat Singh, what I was interested in doing was reading his jail notebooks. Uh, and so these are not the kind of more, these are not the philosophy of the bomb. This is not why I'm an atheist. Um, these are these are his jail notebooks. And what we have, what just what, what post-colonial criticism has tended to do is read these jail notebooks as proof of the of his eventual mastery, that he was studying communism, that he was studying 
the Bolsheviks, that he was studying the, the Irish Republican Army, that he was studying these to be a master of anti-colonial activism, to be a master of worldwide socialism, and so on. But the, the, the notebooks themselves are not that. <laughs> I mean, they are, he, they are a document of his reading practices. They are notes that he's taking from books. They are quotes that he's copied down. Um, while he is in jail and sentenced to life, and beyond the point in which he had, I mean, and, and at a point in which he had accepted that he would be hanged at the age of 23, um, I mean, it, this was a moment where he was not reading for eventual mastery. And the eventual mastery that we wish for him was is this kind of fantasy that we have had he lived on you know had he lived he would have written four books about communism we don't i mean that, that's 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 I, I, an admittedly very alluring thing to, to, to speculate about but what we have here is a journal a, a notebooks of notes of is, is something that looks like, more like a commonplace right where pocket singh has copied down uh direct quotes he's kind of you know made some remarks here and there but it's really truly a document of not of eventual mastery, but actually current uh, you know, inexpertise, current noviceness. Um, and I mean, I think by wanting, by kind of foregrounding that in the jail notebook, Pugetsing is kind of gesturing, uh, pushing us to think sort of differently about the the project of anti-colonialism as one of mastery versus one of you know inexpertise in the present. This was an anti-colonial project for Puget Singh, and so trying to take seriously what that means then is, is I think, the goal that uh, is, is, it should be the charge of um, our, our, our criticism, our way of uh, our, our analysis. Um, the reason I think that I mean, I think so. I think I think the 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 what makes that project that what makes that project worthwhile is is Puget Singh's commitment to the non-instrumentality, non-instrumentized the non-usefulness. <laughs> Um, um, uh, of reading. Reading is not a useful practice. It does not produce anything. It's not instrumentalizable. Um, but rather, it's sort of pleasure in and of itself. It's a pleasure in the present. It's a way of actually, I mean, it's certainly for Puget Singh, it's a way of interacting with his friends and comrades. Right? They read and then they discussed and they debated and they argued. This was, you know, this, was a, this was a way of being with friends as you were waiting for a death which you were certain, you were completely certain would arrive and very soon and so this is not a this is this this is a non-instrumentalized non-instrumentalized you said it much better i can't i, I can type it i can't write it uh, a non a non-useful a non um it, it it's not pragmatic and you know in, in that sense it's it's um uh it's non-utilitarian right i mean it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a way of thinking about anti-colonialism it's a way of thinking about revolution anything for Pugetsing, more importantly, it's a way of thinking about revolution, um, which is not about uh, the number of utils it will eventually accrue, or the value it will eventually be worth, uh, but rather uh, the, the the value in and of itself in the moment, in the present, uh, you know, it, it, in that sense, right? That's the revolutionary project of reading that Pugetsing, I think, is, is, is gesturing towards. Yeah. And comparability is also, um, to this non-usefulness, is Gandhi's reading for failure. Uh, can you also elaborate on why failure, uh, reading for failure, um, is what how we can understand better Gandhi's reading practices? So I mean I think Gandhi has a, I mean Gandhi has a, a much different approach. I think what Gandhi is trying to think through is is tr is is um uh, a, a form of inexpertise, um, 
you know, perhaps which is invested in reading or you know, committed to reading, a form of an expertise which is about being treated, given up as immature, given up as foolish. Um, uh, all of these practices, I mean, so, you know, I think what's exciting about a lot of the work and um, around Gandhi has been that uh, it's it's done really brilliant things to kind of elucidate his thought. It's, it's connected it to other kind of thinkers in the in the world at the time, both I guess both in the 1920s, but also more contemporary thinkers like uh, Hannah Arendt or Derrida. But I think the I mean, what I find to be exciting, and I, as I, 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 as I completely admire all of that work, I'm, and, 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 and I'm indebted to it. Um, but I, what I find exciting to Gandhi is actually where we can't help him out of his own mess. He comes up, he creates situations which he is bound to mess up. Uh, he creates situations in which he is all but guaranteed to fail, and he creates situations where he's like the, simply the logics of Hemsa, the logics of Satyagraha, the logics of Satyagraha. Oh my God, those are those. They're not. They don't. They don't work. We can't solve them for Gandhi. And I don't think that. I mean, it's very clear throughout Gandhi's writings that Gandhi didn't want them solved. He enjoyed the mess of of his philosophy. And so I wanted to think through what it means to be to to treat Gandhi like the mess that he says he is. Right. Uh, I mean, I think. I, I, you know, I think a, a lot of uh, you know a lot of criticism of the of that chapter has been about me trusting Gandhi a little too much, right? I mean, he he often uses this as a kind of evasive tool, um, you know, uh, and it gets him out of a lot of trouble sometimes. You know, oh, I'm I'm just foolish. Don't don't listen to me when he's actually doing something quite authoritative in that moment. That's true. I just wanted to take seriously the possibility of what it means to make a messy philosophy and to use that as a basis for an insufficient revolutionary politics, right? So again, this is about imperfection. It's about insufficiency. It's about, um, in Gandhi's case, I think I think Gandhi really was really trying to push towards this kind of really wildly radical, but extreme form of inexpertise and foolishness and noviceness and that, that, you know, that, that led him to some again some really clunky outcomes and some clunky places, but that that theory of the wildly insufficient, the wildly immature, the 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 wildly inexpert, the wild wild and wild and expertise, right? I think is really exciting as a way of grounding an anti-colonial politics that I think is, we should we should be paying more attention to rather than trying to figure out how to make Gandhi's anti-colonial politics logical or make sense or be worth something. I think that's I think we might. Take a moment to go back with Gandhi uh, and be a little bit foolish, um, which leads me to read Hinsaraj in a different way. Uh, so you know, the book that he wrote in 1909 and in 1939, he said he wouldn't change a word. Right? Is this dialogue between? It's dialogue about um, you know uh, India under self-rule, um, which is between an editor and a reader, and we kind of tend to think because the the, the editor is making. Um, a lot of the points that the reader is someone, uh, you know, perhaps the British, perhaps more revolutionary thinkers, perhaps even Nehru sometimes or whatever, and the editor is Gandhi, right? But I think what we find when we read when we read Hinsaraj over the course, we can track alongside Gandhi's career is that Gandhi was really gesturing towards being the reader and having the authorities be somewhere else. So the dialogue is not so clear cut. A kind of uh, Gandhi, the editor, the reader, just someone who's uh, recalcitrant. But but knowing what we know about Gandhi's recalcitrance, right? Gandhi, I think, wanted to was gesturing towards being the reader himself. So I, mean, I, I think that 
I think that's the way to kind of think through a different, a, a, again, a project of an expertise that Gandhi might be, that Gandhi was certainly thinking through. Um, you know, at the same time, I mean, these are, again, I mean, to be clear, all of these thinkers are simultaneously theorizing really grand heroic gestures. Bhagat Singh is arguing about books at the same time he's throwing bombs. I'm not trying to separate these. I'm not trying to um, hide one of the other, but I, I want to kind of foreground the ones that we tend to that tend to drop out. And that's what I'm doing here with Gandhi. Yeah. And this, I mean, this, this failure is is also interesting when we come to, to the last thinker, which is Ambedkar. And you have portrayed with great clarity that these anti-colonial thinkers did not live long to see their idea in fruition. And when we come to Ambedkar, he um, did not succumb to uh, despair or nihilism, rather embrace this um, hope uh, of non-theological egalitarianism. Um, um, admits the sad reality um, that uh, post-independence uh, of India presented itself. Um, to to help those who are listening here, could you elaborate on what this means when we read, for example, Ambedkar's, uh, I mean, not Ambedkar's failure, as in that the country's failure in front of what Ambedkar's project was? Well, I, huh, that's a very good question. I think, um, how, I, I guess, um, well, this is, we've, I mean, so, and this would be how I, I mean, so we, we, Ambedkar was constantly critical of um, of nationalist anti-colonialism, precisely because he did not see that there would be difference between uh, Dalits being uh, ruled by the British or Dalits being ruled by Brahmins. Um, and certainly what you see as he presents his the draft constitution, which is this brilliant document for you know, which has all of these kind of you know, juridical activism on protect you know, for the protection of um, scheduled castes and lower castes and untouchable people, um, you know, on, in the meantime of the, you know, as we are on the way to eradicating caste entirely. I mean, so yeah, I mean, it has these kind of, it's it a really beautiful document. And what he watched, I mean, it's not only what he kind of watched uh, come true in some sense, right, is, is the the caste and the, uh, the oppression of caste, the injustice of caste, um, and the lives of Dalits didn't change um, you know, substantially between you know uh, the British Raj and um, you know and post-independent India, um, and and certainly as he watched the, his constitution be drafted and drafted and drafted further away from him, I mean this became a realization. So I mean, what and 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 in some ways, I mean this is this is precisely what his turn. I mean, it wasn't a, it was not a turn at that moment to Buddhism. It was a long lifelong reflection on Buddhism, but Buddhism opened up this possibility to leave that moment and leave with others and yet stay committed to Dalits who could not leave, right? And so it was this kind of really wild, really kind of imaginative reworking of Buddhism for an anti-caste politics and for Dalit solidarity. Um, yeah, I mean, so I think, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, there are places, there are plenty of places where Ambedkar is overtly critical of nationalist anti-colonialism, there are plenty of places you know, after 47, before he dies, uh, where Ambika is critical of the Indian government. I think what I'm, I mean, what I'm really interested in, what I find fascinating in, about, about Ambika in this moment is, is not really, I mean, it's not that, though, I mean, I, 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 
I'm interested in that in a separate way. But here I was really interested in the book, I was really interested in how he theorizes a, 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 an anti-caste politics as an anti-authoritarian politics. And so it's so in so in some ways what he does, I mean and then what he does you know, by this kind of really brilliant philological reading of of you know these kind of of, of Manishpiti, right, is that he actually shows that an anti-caste politics is anti-colonial because it's because caste politics is so committed to a certain type of colonial politics. Um, you know, and, and the, you know, the kind of orientalism of Sanskrit instruction and uh and translation and you know, under the British East India Company to the British Rod and so on. So what he's doing is not simply just kind of refusing caste, but he's actually showing the complete like illog the, the, the complete irrelevance, I would say of its own authority, right? At the center of caste's authority is Manu and his laws. The Manu Shmiti gives all of these laws and, and authorial practices for how one, authoritative practices for how one should do caste um, and how one should perpetuate caste injustice. What Ambedkar finds when he goes to read Manu Shmiti, and he does this beautiful reading of the Manu Shmiti, which just shows it's, it is, it's 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 a mess. It's a it's an irrelevant document. It's it's nonsensical in a way that is, it it reveals its own nonsense. Uh, 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 and so what is so there's there's the 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 insanity of the madness the madness of Manu and Victor's words. The insanity of caste, right, is that it relies on an authoritative practice that its authority does not can't hold up. And so you know, this kind of the, the authority of caste, the authority of colonial structure, um, you know, these are these are not simply it's one thing to refute them and to kind of stage your own, but I mean the risk I suppose you would run would be you know asserting a, a new authority in place of the old. But what Ambedkar does really brilliantly and just it's, it's really beautifully is uh, is really show that at the heart of caste's authority uh, and a caste authoritative power. Is actually there's no, there's nothing there's no there's no there's no there there right? can't, the center doesn't exist uh, and so you know caste authority is completely irrelevant and so the the annihilation of caste is not one of refuting caste but rather one of annihilating it making it totally irrelevant I think that's I mean I think that that's Ambika's kind of brilliant brilliant insight here um, that, that was my reading in that chapter. Thank you for this clarification. Now um, we're almost at the end. And since this book was published almost three years ago, two and a half, something like that. Um, and you had had an, some opportunity to have some feedback from the readers. Um, but I would like to hear, give an opportunity for you um, to say, um, what do you hope the readers take from this book? How do you hope the readers read this book? I uh, I mean I have be, I've been so incredibly lucky to have interacted with readers who read it in ways that I couldn't have imagined that they would. So I don't I I mean, I I feel like saying the things that I want readers to do would just actually be boring at this point. The the readers that I've had I, I again I've been I'm it's been really really amazing. The readers that have engaged with the book um, have engaged with it in ways that I. Have really made me rethink a lot of the work. I mean, I, 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 I stand by the book in some sense, but uh, you know, I, I've been pushed to think in many different ways. People like um, Ajay Skoya, Shruti Kapila, uh, uh, and uh, and have really kind of challenged 
the kind of way that I've thought about these things is on the same page. I mean, I would like to, that would be one thing I'd want to revisit. Um, and other thinkers have, I mean, other people that I've heard from, other readers have just pushed the book to do things that I didn't think the book could do. And so it's, it, it's in some ways, that's the reading that I, if I, if I were to imagine what I wanted, it it doesn't compare to what I've seen happen in some of the readings and responses and, and criticisms that have really made the book more exciting than I thought it could be. Um, and I've been really grateful for that. I think, um, right. I, I think that the, uh, yeah, the, the, the way that I've been made to think about the book in the, in the past three years, you know, after its publication, I, you know, I thought maybe the book was done. Um, and the book is in many ways done, but I, I really, the, the, the engagements, the criticisms, the responses have been so helpful for me to go back and actually think about what I was doing there and how I, you know, and, and, and for me, that's, that's, that's been absolutely, that's been the best part about having written the book. It's this, the, it's not fun to write a book for yourself. It's fun to read. It's right. You, you want to write a book for others. Um, uh, and, you know, the academic monograph has a number of different tasks that it must perform in the institution of a cat in the academy. Uh, and yet I've, I've been able to have this book do something slightly different by having a, you know, a, a set of engaged readers who have made it much more exciting than me talking into the void, um, hearing my voice repeated back at me. I, 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 yeah, a book about, I mean, you, you would think that it's a bit idiotic that a book about, someone who writes a book about readers being revolutionary isn't surprised that re readers are revolutionary, but, and that's a fun thing to be surprised, idiot, idiotically surprised by repeatedly. So I've been, that's been really exciting. Yeah. Um, and the last question as always, what are you working on right now? What do we hope from you to read in the future? So I'm working on a few books uh, uh, simultaneously, uh, which is a bit mad but i think uh the first the next kind of academic book is one about anti-colonial socio anti-colonial sociology so it's a book that charts the ways that uh anti-colonial thinkers took up early soci early 20th century sociology and its messiness and its vibrancy and used it to imagine an, a post-colonial decolonial world so this this is most obviously in baker who studied at columbia uh, but it's also in kruma uh it's kenyatta um, it's Franz Fanon, uh, and so I'm interested. And in, then in, what I'm interested in here is, in some ways, that what I was getting at a little earlier with, with this kind of what, what world, how do you act on the post-colonial world, the post-colonial, the post-independent world, the post-independence world, and that you know, through the decolonial wave of the mid 20th century, right, was one where technically post like the colonial, anti technically anti-colonialism won, but what it won was a world that was wildly far away from the world that it had envisioned and fought for. So it's a kind of technical win, but not, you know, not a win for you, the utopian strain of you know, political philosophy that had promoted it, right? And and so I, what I'm finding is that these kind of anti-colonial thinkers, these post-colonial thinkers, these post-independent thinkers, uh, post-independence thinkers, uh, turning back to their training in sociology to, to, to use the concepts of you know shared shared consciousness um social you know cohesiveness solidarity all of these things all these things are turning to those to reimagine a world that still yet must come so you know, even in this moment of the 1950s in the 1960s 
these thinkers are still pushing at the possibility for new modes of solidarity, new modes of political affiliation, new modes of political community that are rooted in shared consciousness, that are rooted in, in conscience and contrasts. Um, you know, these include the kind of more obvious things like Dandong uh, and Afro-Asian solidarity, but actually, and I'm much more interested in the kind of quieter things that are like the kind of tentative Pan-Africanisms, the the proposals to the League of Nations uh, and the UN for nations which weren't nations. So all of these kind of modes of, of political belonging that aren't the nation, um, but rather rely on this kind of more amorphous sense of solidarity uh, of, that that can be kind of captured under society uh as it was theorized in the early 20th century so that's that's the that's that book i'm also working on a book about my uncle who died from hiv in H hiv aids in 1993 i'm 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 trying to write a book about his life and you know how his life uh, uh as an out gay man in the 1980s as a german professor as the as a as a german wine expert in, in the late 80s how all of you know how his life has shaped uh mine and my families uh and that that's that's a that's a project which is really really important to me as well both sound like wonderful projects and i'm sure i will read them both when they're published thank and you so much thank you so much for joining me today and I wish uh, you all the best for the projects. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.